it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have episode 205. Tonight, we are going to go back to the well and answer some great listener questions we got recently. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first question. So I have, hi, Andrew and Dave. Before anything, just like to thank both of you for the wonderful podcast which you created. I am Canadian in early 60s, have my DB pension, my own RRSP, which max out every year, have my TFA, TFSA account, which is also maxed out. Also, also have a trading account, which buying stocks with my cash money and sometimes borrowed money from a line of credit. And of course, try to pay it off as fast as I can. Question I have, am I better off paying the line of credit, which using for investment or save my money? My concern, if government is getting 50% of my capital gains, what is the best way to get better returns on my investment? Thanks, Mars. So, Andrew, what is your thought on Mars? Excellent question. It's interesting because there are differences in taxes, whether you're in the U.S. or you're in Canada. There's also differences in taxes between how you're investing. So he mentioned the, is it TSFA or TFSA? I don't really know which one. And RRSP. These are basically like tax advantage accounts in Canada. You can think of a similar thing like a Roth IRA or traditional 401k in the United States. These are things that will defer taxes, basically give you some sort of tax advantage. And so what Mars is talking about with this question is he's already maxed out those kind of tax advantage accounts. A lot of times we do talk about like that, but let's talk about as if you had maxed those out, you're just looking to invest your extra money. And so what you're going to do about these capital gains tax. So Canada is interesting because what they'll do is, in contrast to the United States, you have a short-term capital gains tax, a long-term capital gains tax. Short-term means you held the stock for one year or less, and then you sold it. Long-term means you held it for at least one year. So in that case, in the US, if you're doing a short-term capital gains, you have to pay what your income bracket is for that capital gain. If I'm in a 30% tax bracket, I'm paying 30% on that. Um, in the US, for a long-term capital gains tax, that also depends on your income, but the most you'll pay 
as of right now, 2021, the most you'll pay is 20%. It goes to 15% if you're in certain range. And if you're like zero to 40K, you don't have to pay any capital gains tax. So that's cool for you. For Canada, they don't do a strict difference between long or short term. They just take 50% of your capital gains and then they tax that at your income. So what that means is if we invested $100, we sold it for $110. That's a $10 gain. They're going to you split half of that. So it's a $5 that you're taxed on and then you're taxed on your tax bracket on those $5. So again, if you're in like a 30% tax bracket, you get 30% tax on the five, which if you think about the overall tax for that would be about 15% because you've got the extra five that you could save and not get taxed on. So which one is better or not, I guess, depends on your specific situation. I find it interesting that there's no difference in Canada between the long and short term. Um, and I don't have information on what the actual tax brackets are, but my guess is they probably get taxed a little bit more than the US just based on how the US has been lately with taxes compared to other countries. Do you have thoughts on that? I think one of the things that I have thoughts on is the line of credit. Is that something you wanted to touch on? Yeah, real quick, let me finish up on capital gains. So in the US, a great way to defer capital gains is to do the long term instead of the short term. So you get that better bracket for most people. That said, whether you are in Canada or the United States or Europe, as it stands now, as long as you don't sell, you don't have to pay the capital gains. So there's some crazy talk about potentially changing that, which I don't even know what that would do to the markets. You only get taxed when you sell. So that's why Warren Buffett's such a huge advocate of you buy stocks for long term and you let them compound. Because if you were to like trade in and out of the same stock, every single time you trade and have a profit, you'd have to pay tax on it. And then you do that again and again. But if you just buy one company and you hold it for five years, 10 years, 20 years, you're not paying taxes until the very end. And so all those times you didn't pay taxes are just times that the value of the companies continue to compound. And that makes a huge difference. You could look at the math, but it's huge. So if you're worried about, it's not quite them getting 50% of your gains. It's much less when you do the math. But if you're worried about that, by far the best anecdote, not anecdote, antidote. That's a word. There you go. There you go. The best antidote would be the hold for the long term. Absolutely, it would. And I agree with your idea. The The best way to avoid having to pay any of those additional taxes is, is to to hold the company that you're buying for at least a year. And generally, if you're a long-term investor, then this is the way that you can help reduce some of the costs that will help eat into your returns as well. Because taxes, as we've mentioned in the past, is something a lot of people don't talk about, but it's a very real cost and it needs to be accounted for. And a lot of people don't account for it when they're thinking about their returns or how that's going to affect their returns in the future. And that's why Depending on your income level and where you really are in your investment plan or your retirement plan is sitting down with a a tax advisor or or some sort of consultant that works with taxes and talks through what's the best way to set up your retirement accounts, your brokerage accounts, and any other accounts that you have to help lessen the impact that taxes will have. Because the sad fact of the matter is it's a reality that we all have to face. We all have to pay taxes. It sucks. Nobody likes it, but it's part of the game and it's something we all have to do. And so any way that you can 
lessen that burden weekly, of course, is the best way to go about doing it. And to my knowledge, really the best way to do that is to, to hold for the long term. Now, there are other ideas out there that I'll be honest with you, I'm not super hip to. I just don't know a lot about them. Tax harvesting and tax loss harvesting and some of those kinds of strategies, There, those are things out there, but that's not something I don't buy and sell enough to have to deal with that. And I'm also not a high income earner, so it's not something I have to consider as well. Yeah, it's it's much easier to just focus on a lot of the things that you can control because that's the thing with taxes; they change all the time. Yep, they do. So, you know, people wonder why I don't buy internationally and I just stick to the U.S. Well, a lot of times, if you sell and you get taxed in the U.S., a lot of times another country would want to tax you as well. Mm-hmm. Whether we're talking about dividends, capital gains, and if they don't now, they so possibly could later. Yep. The difference between getting taxed a second time even like a 20% tax, my 10% return just went to 8%. And then you want to do that for every single investment you buy. How much? How hard is it to get 12% instead of 10% a year? It's not easy. No, it's you not know. easy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite a thing. And, and so you're already going to start a game two steps behind. Doesn't make sense. That's why I like to try to keep it simple. And so buying long-term and buying domestically works really great for me. Yep. And I, I agree with that. And I, I want to touch on one little thing. So Andrew mentioned the the conversation about capital gains and, and some of the dialogue that's been going on in Congress about that. And I'm not going to make a comment either way about the politics, but the schematics of it is the idea is that they're looking at possibly taxing people on in their investments regardless of whether you sold it or not. So the idea of a long-term or short-term capital gain would go out the window and they would just tax you. So if you have an investment, whether you've held it for one day or whether you've held it for 15 years, they would tax the unrealized profits that you would have. So let's say you buy a company like Apple, for example, and you buy it at $80 a share and it goes up to $120 a share. That $40 that is a unrealized gain. In other words, you haven't actually, the difference between realized and unrealized is when you sell that stock to somebody else and you take that $40, that's a realized gain. And right now that's the only taxes you would pay on that investment. However, the Congress, one of the things that they've been looking at is possibly taxing you on the $40 that you haven't realized yet. So you'd be taxed on money that you haven't actually gotten from your investment. And that's what's been causing all the uproar. And you know, like Andrew said, there would be, there would probably be huge ramifications for that. And you know, some of these people that had Warren Buffett, for example, has held some of these companies for up to 30 to 50 years. <laughs> and the, the gains that he's made on some of those investments are massive. And he's not trying to avoid taxes. He's, he pays taxes based on the way the laws are written. And Nobody can argue about that. But if Congress does change their mind and decide to tax on unrealized gains, they're looking at, he's looking at quite a bit of money he would have to pay out. And based on what he's decided to do with his, his earnings, he's going to give 98% of it to charities. So in his circumstance, that would be 
a detriment to the people that would possibly be receiving those char- that charitable benefit. So uh, w- again, without r- going on the, uh, a, a tangent on, on politics, that's something that is, it is being discussed. I don't think it's gained a lot of traction, but it is definitely being discussed. So it's something to be aware of. Who knows if it'll ever come to fruition. If it does, you bet your butt we'll be talking about it. So <laughs> well said. I'm yeah. going to, I guess there is this part of the question about the line of credit, similar to a question we answered a few weeks ago, but did you want, you had some thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I wanted to touch on that for a second. So a line of credit, for those of you who are not familiar with what that is, in essence, what it is, it's a credit card without the actual plastic. So it's a line of credit that a bank or financial institution gives you to allow you to go out and buy things with credit that they've given you. In most cases, you transfer the money from your credit account to your checking account and you go out and buy whatever it is you want. And then you pay back the money to the line of credit that you can reuse just like a credit card. The advantages credit generally, they are lower than credit cards simply for the fact they don't lines of credit are not something they just give to every Tom, Dick and Harry. It's usually given to people that have really good credit scores, good income, good history with the bank. And so these are perks or benefits that the banks will extend to some of their better customers. Wells Fargo recently, however, announced that they are doing away with their lines of credit. And so that kind of caused a big uproar with people that are with the bank and not exactly sure how that's all going to play out. But Aside from that, the idea is still remains the same. I'm very hesitant to suggest anybody use credit to go out and borrow to invest in anything simply for the fact that two things. One, you have to make sure that investment earns more interest than you have to pay in the money you've borrowed. So if you borrow $1,000 to go out and invest in something and your interest rate is 10%, you got to make at least 10% or better to break even on a deal. And if you don't, you're basically throwing money away. If you're earning 2% or if you're paying 2% on your line of credit and you can earn something that makes more than that, okay, maybe. But the flip side of that is anything you invest in a stock market has risk to it. And there's always the risk that company could go south, that something could happen to the company over a period of time. And so the the money that you could be making from that investment, you may have been using to turn around and pay the line of credit back. And now all of a sudden that income stream stops, then, you know, then what do you do? Now you got to pay for that out of, out of your pocket. And if you're not in a position to do that, it just, it, it puts you in a, a far more precarious position to invest doing it that way. And so I, I, I personally would never do it and I, I would never recommend anybody do that. I did have a few customers ask me about those kinds of ideas when I was at the bank and I was very against it just because it can, it, there's so many ways that it can go sideways that could outweigh the benefits of, of doing it. Sure, you could hit a big with a company and really strike it rich with that, but there's so many downsides to it that it's just not something I would recommend. So is it similar to a credit card in that if I took out 6000 on the line of credit, uh, and uh, let's say I took out the whole thing. So I'm going to have to make monthly payments to eventually pay that six grand back plus whatever the interest rate is. That's correct. Yep. And there's going to be minimums, and the more I take out, the higher the minimums go. Yep, exactly. It's it, They call it a, a revolving line of credit. So the credit cards and lines of credit, home equity lines of credit, those are all considered revolving lines of credit. Whereas if you get a car loan, a mortgage, uh, a personal loan, those are all fixed 
credit items because it's a fixed amount. You borrow $10,000, you pay it back plus your interest and it's done. The, the deal is over. But line of credit card, those are revolving because as you pay it back, you have it accessible to use again. I think the the biggest thing whenever you're talking about leverage and especially something like a line of credit, the smartest guys in the world who had figured out all the risk and all the math and all the models, they were their name was they were a fund called Long Term Capital Management, mm-hmm. and they had all the best. They had thought of every risk thing except for the one risk they didn't think of, and so they were leveraged. I don't know forty to one or something, and yeah. the whole thing blew up. And so yep. that's the problem with leverage is. There's always going to be one one thing that you didn't account for that could blow it up and make you lose everything that you worked so hard to build by being smart and pinching pinching pennies or throwing right. numbers around. All right, trying to pick up that penny in front of the steamroll. Sometimes it's just not it's just not worth it. And I think weren't a lot of those guys rocket scientists? Like literally, I think they were rocket scientists. <laughs> yeah, oh, they were all like PhDs and brilliant know, guys. After yeah. names, yeah, and yeah. completely just, blew up. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think the bottom line is Andrew and I would not recommend anybody use leverage of any sort to invest. Exactly. All right. So I'm going to. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Read the next question here. Thanks for the great question, Mars, by the way. So this one comes from Twitter. Basically, do I-bond treasuries compound interest daily, monthly, or yearly on investment over the length of the U.S. bond? Do any government bonds do this? Okay, so this is an interesting question. So I-bonds are part of the treasury bonds that the U.S. Treasury offers. These are long-term bonds. Uh, They're 30-year bonds, and you could buy them. They are not traded per se like treasury bonds are. So they are a, they're in essence a savings bond. So what you do is you buy them at treasury.gov and they pay interest over the life of the bond. And basically the way they work is they pay the interest semi-annually. So that means every six months at the beginning of every every month, they calculate what the interest rate is going to be and the inflation that they adjust for inflation. So that's what makes I-bonds different than treasury bonds, for example, is that I-bonds adjust for inflation. And so that's that could be one of the benefits for using them, especially when inflation is going up, because then you get that additional uh, benefit. When inflation is stagnant or going down, then they're maybe not as beneficial. The I-bonds, they, the kind of the way it works is, you have a five-year window that if you if you liquidate the bond within five years, you're going to pay a penalty, which is the penalty would be the last three months of any interest you would have earned on the bond. So you would get your full amount that you invested in the bond plus any interest that you've earned over that period of time. Now, another cool thing about I-bonds is when they calculate their interest every six months, they add the interest and the inflation adjustment to the value of the bond. And then the next six months, it calculates interest based on that new amount. So normally there it's a fixed rate and it just pays it, it pays on top of the interest every six months. This one. So let's say just for easy numbers, let's say you buy a bond for a hundred dollars after the end of 10 months, the interest is calculated and let's say it's $15. So now the bond is going to pay it's your, uh, the fifteen dollars gets added to the hundred. So now the hundred and fifteen is going to earn interest over the next six months, and then that gets added to the hundred and fifteen dollars. And then the next six month period, it'll be compounded upon that and compounded upon that. So it's a little different than normal bonds. So that's that's a cool feature of them. They're long term bonds, like I said. So they're thirty year bonds. They're really designed to be held for a long period of time. They're not a short term trading in and out kind of bond. The flip side of that is treasury bills and treasury bonds all pay interest on a six month period. There are treasury bills, which are shorter term bills. I believe there are a year or less. And you have treasury bills that are shorter term bills that pay interest every six months. Generally, the shorter can go as, as short as seven days and they can go up to a year. Then you have treasury notes that, that generally ra- that range between a year and 10 years. And then you have 30 year bonds and now they have a 20 year bond, which they just started recently. So those, again, they all pay interest every six months. So to my knowledge, there are no notes, bills or bonds that pay interest daily or monthly. It's all semi-annually. So every six months is when they pay that. And the savings bonds differ in that you pay the interest. So when you buy the $100 bond, 
it's marked at par, which what they do is they calculate what the interest would be for however long the savings bond is that you bought. Let's say it's a 10 year. They calculate the, the interest on the savings bond and then they reduce that from the hundred dollars. So let's say it knocks it down to 53 bucks, for example. Then after 10 years, that would grow to 53, the $53 would grow to a hundred dollars. And then you earn interest on top of that as well. So that's how they calculate that. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes people will come and redeem a hundred dollar bond at, at the bank and like a, a double E bond. And they'll be like, why is it only $79? It says it's, it says it's a hundred. Well, because you, it, it hasn't matured yet. So until it matures, it's going to be less than the, the face value of the bond. There's a lot of talk about these bonds, but they're such low interest rates. And when I think of like, why would anybody buy a 30 year bond that pays like less than a percent? It's really a different use case. And it's not like your everyday Dick, Harry, and Sally who are buying these things, but it's like large institutions yeah. who have different needs. Or even if, if you're a bank and you're able to pay a fraction of a percent to keep some of these checking deposit, well, then it makes sense for you to buy a super long-term bond to, to that pays a percent because you're getting a spread on that. I think exactly. for most people, the I-bond might be a little bit different because if you're, I guess, if you're in retirement or you just have an ultra-conservative outlook, maybe it makes sense for you. But the, and these rates are pitifully low. Yes, they are. And the majority of the bond market is in institutional investors and treasury bills, bonds, and notes all trade on the markets. They are investments, so you can buy and sell them. Whereas something like an I-bond or a double E savings bond, those do not. Those are considered savings bonds and those are bought and sold at par. Whereas treasury bills, notes, and bonds are traded on markets. And so you can try to benefit from fluctuations in price and yield of those things. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is Warren Buffett actually holds a ton of treasury notes in his portfolio because of the nature of the business of how they operate. They have a lot of cash because they work with insurance and people pay insurance and those premiums don't get paid out every single day. So they got to find something to do with that. So some of it they use to invest, but some of it, a lot of it, they put in short-term treasury bills or notes to try to earn a little bit of interest because frankly, that interest, even as pitiful as it is, is a thousand times better than you would get at Wells Fargo, for example. For him, there's a benefit to it, but he's dealing in such large numbers. We're talking tens of billions of dollars, whereas you and I are talking a thousand bucks. So it's it's not apples to apples. Yeah. If you're wondering what CFOs do, they can spend all day <laughs> doing oh, yeah. stuff like that. Even a company like Microsoft, they've got so much cash. Oh, yeah. When you look at their, lo- their short-term investments, a lot of that stuff's like treasury notes and all that too, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I remember that the treasury market as well as just the bond market in general dwarfs the stock market by, I don't know, three times or something. It's just massively huge. And it's just not talked about a lot because it's not really, it's not really, it's not really designed and meant for average retail investors like us to, to play in, but there's certainly a place for it if your portfolio and your financial situation calls for it. Yeah. I don't see that as like a bad thing for the average retail investor. I don't see it as like some scam that we don't have access to these things. But it's really when you start to talk about hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, it really is a different world. And to your point, sometimes capital preservation at that amount is a different ballgame than trying to trying to go our average wealth. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. All right. So let's let's move on to the final question. So we have, dear Andrew, it is clear to me that you are a defensive investor where it is more important to preserve capital, which follows with Buffett's teaching. This is why you're not so keen on growth stocks with your value trap indicator. Growth stocks are inherently more risky. What you say makes sense. Buy value and let time allow for reversion to the mean to achieve fair value. The longer the time frame, the more likely this is to happen. Prices vary around fair value. A quote from Benjamin Graham. In the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it is a weighing machine. Would you agree? Regards, Anil. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Anil's question? I think it's a good opportunity to talk about what reversion to the mean is. I think we've touched on it before in previous episodes, but basically you have this idea that the market's very emotional, it's very irrational, and at times it can get really expensive or really cheap. And not only the entire market, but also individual stocks and individual companies. And so what tends to happen because it's emotional and because not only is it emotional, which makes it sound stupid, but it also has a lot of momentum people who are just short-term trading. Morgan Housel is a great book. Have you read it? The uh, The Psychology of Money? Absolutely. It was one of my Christmas presents. Fantastic book. Really? My my little girl. No way. That's adorable. Yeah. What a great book. She had, I don't even know if she had any idea how sage that was. No, <laughs> it's pretty sage. <laughs> so in that book, he mentions how in the market, you really have two camps. You have the people who are buying stocks because they're looking at it as a long-term investment. And then you have people who are very short-term. They're even sometimes a time frame as little as a day or a couple hours. And so they're not even looking at how much this company is worth over 10 years because they're going to hold it for 10 minutes. And so you really have two different camps in the market that are huge. They make up huge amounts of the market. Whether we're talking about hedge funds, whether we're talking about fund managers, whether you're talking about retail people, it's, it's huge. ETFs even. So what happens is you have these two different camps and because you have a bunch of short-term traders that are moving the prices, that's why it gets emotional because any little dip and then if the short-term traders catch on to that dip, they'll bid it down so low or they'll bid it up so high. And so that's where you get the emotions of the market. And so that's where you get reversion to the mean because eventually that trend will play out and all of the short-term traders that we're in on one way they're all going to leave. And so what's that going to do? It's going to bounce back up almost like a teeter-totter that loses all of its weight. And so that's why you have reversion to the mean. And so as somebody who's long-term, you got to think, what is my competitive advantage as an average investor? If you look at all the different parts of Wall Street and all the different players, they're all playing a different game. So you, as an individual investor, your one advantage is you don't have to play that game. You don't have to play their game. You can play a long-term game where you say, I'm going to I'm gonna look for companies that are, I think can grow for five years or 10 years. And you can just hold for five years or 10 years. And you don't have people checking up on you to say, hey, how's your performance been lately, buddy? You don't have to answer to anybody but yourself. And so you can combine those things with a reversion to the mean concept where you realize the emotions will eventually run out and this thing will trade where it should. And you can most definitely do that. And that's where the that's where the magic of the market can happen. You combine those two things. Now, I, I really believe that there's two different kinds of reversions to the mean. You have that short-term type thing, and then you have more of a longer-term thing. 
I think the longer term thing might be a little bit more difficult because it's not as obvious. And Neil talks here how the longer the time frame, the more likely this is to happen. Sometimes, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the mar- the market's smarter than you. Sometimes you're smarter than the market. Sometimes these things will go where you think they are supposed to go. But just because you hold something for 10 years doesn't guarantee it's going to go where you think that reversion point is. So I'd be careful about relying only on reversion to the mean, especially if you're going to be someone who's super long-term. In my mind, it's really, it's really more about paying a fair price for something than it is for paying like a super big bargain, unless you want to play those big rebounds like the teeter-totter like we talked about. But for me, I'm, I'm looking at what, what can be my competitive advantage. And for me, it can I could hold 5, 10, 20 years. And that's something that most of Wall Street probably isn't willing to do. And so for me, I just... I got to make sure that over that time period, I'm not I'm not running into Cisco in 2000 or Microsoft in 2000, where their stock was so expensive that it was flat even 15 years later. You want to stay away from those, but at the same time, be okay paying a little bit of a premium um, for something, even though it's not in your reversion to the mean, because you understand that your competitive advantage is over the long term. Yeah, the long term is really where it's at. And when you look at the returns that most of the great investors have gotten, it's because they've held companies for a long period of time. It doesn't mean you have to hold it from now until the time you retire or the time that you pass away, but holding it for longer than six months is really where you're going to start to gain any advantage, especially if the company or the investment that you've bought into is one of the better companies in that sector or segment. And when you think about reversion to the mean, you know, Andrew d- did a great job of explaining how to think about those things. Another thing I guess I'd w- want to throw on there is thinking about when you're thinking about a longer term investment in a company that will do great over a long period of time, the the idea that every single company that you invest in is going to continue to grow for 20 years is it, it just the history and the math show that's not likely to happen. And there's going to be there's going to be falling off of certain companies. And really it comes down to more about the operations and the business and what it does than really the the math of it. So think about a a couple good examples would be to think about something like BlackBerry or Kodak. So those companies up until they weren't were some of the leaders in their fields. BlackBerry was the it phone for a long period of time until Apple created their iPod, which morphed into the iPhone, and then BlackBerry became irrelevant. Kodak, along the same lines with the creation of digital photography, they didn't keep up with the trends, and then they became irrelevant. And so even though the company was a great company up until it wasn't, and it was a quick turnaround, it wasn't something that just ha- it happened over decades. It happened fairly quickly. And so that reversion to the mean, if you will, was pretty sudden. And really that comes down to more about the knowledge of the sector knowledge of the industry, knowledge of how the company interacts within their playing field, plus just the general life cycle of how a business operates. So really quickly, every company goes through a cycle of life, if you will, just like we do, just like everything on earth does. And 
they start out young and they're super aggressive and super exciting and everything goes up to the right. Revenues, growth, everything is all about this. Then at some point it starts to mature. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just, it becomes a more steady operating company that continues to grow, but the nature of the growth is far less than it was in the early stages of the company. Then it starts to become maybe on the other side of maturity. So somebody who's 54 and on the older side, I'm on the more mature side. I still have things I could do, but the growth is gone. And so now it's about maintaining what you have. And then eventually it's going to start to become in the declining phase. And you can look at, there's a million different you know examples out there, but every company goes through that life cycle. And there are exceptions. Amazon, you know, <laughs> continues to defy. And as large as it is, it still is growing 20, 30% a year. It's just insane. But that's an anomaly. Every Most other companies out there don't or will not continue to grow at that rate. And so they will revert, start to revert to the mean at some point. And, but those are all things that you learn as you study the business and you study the industry that they're in and you become a lot more familiar with that. And aside from the number part of it, just understanding the business, understanding the sector it is, understanding the threats to the sector and what could come in and disrupt that company. I've been spending a lot of time lately looking at fintech because I feel like some of these companies that are coming out now, like Stripe, Square, PayPal, and the list goes on and on, I think are going to start to disrupt a little bit of how we handle our money and how we make payments and how banks operate. And it could be good or bad for banks. I, I don't know. I, it's still to be determined, but my you know, working theory at the moment is that this is going to disrupt how we handle our money at the very least. And so understanding that and understanding banks and understanding fintech, I think can help me pick and choose different investments. But I also understand that a company like Square or PayPal is at the early stage of their growth cycle and the, the growth will be continuing for a while, but at some point it's going to start to mature. It's just, it just will. And it'll start to even out and eventually go into the rest of it. So those are all things you have to consider when you're thinking about investing in any company for the long term. That's a fantastic way to put it in perspective because to your point exactly, I think a lot of growth stocks, if not most, they get so expensive that it's almost as if they expect this explosive growth, this young phase to last forever. Mm -hmm. There are some growth companies out there that will be priced more like they're going to grow at a matured state, but a lot of the growth companies are priced like they're going to explode forever. And the fact of the matter is eventually they're going to have to submit to nature's laws. Mm -hmm. And that's why those stocks get killed. And it happens very quickly, like you said, because you get... Not only the fundamentalists who realize they were wrong, but the short-term trends who are like, we're out of here. This trend just went the other way. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Anyway, I guess that's going to wrap us up for 10. Thanks, everybody, for writing in those questions. Anil, Mars, the guy on Twitter. Speaking of our Twitter, we just launched one for this podcast. So that one's at IFB podcast, insightful tweets for the most part that come out of that account. I liked the poll that was submitted on there. It, it, what was it? Something about dividends, right? It said, yeah. What was the poll about dividends? Oh gosh, I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> sorry. I think it said, do you like dividends or something? Yeah. 
Oh, do you like them, not like them, or ambivalent? Or, yeah, and a hundred percent of the votes said yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's my people. And yeah. then there was another one I thought was funny. It was a uh, traditional IRA or Roth IRA. Roth IRA, yeah. And Roth IRA got all of the votes, and I was like, wow, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I people people are on their level in in those regards. Yep, yep, for sure. So it's been a lot of fun, and we just started it recently. But it'll be a mixture of some beginner stuff. We'll talk about different aspects of investing as well as financial uh, literacy, and then we'll also occasionally we'll post different things that we're writing on the blog, as well as we'll post the new updates to the podcast when when episodes drop. So. It'll, Check it out. And another great way for you guys to get in touch with us. So if you have any questions or want to interact with us, that's another great way to to interact with us. And we're here to help you. So this is another avenue for you to reach out. All right. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. So again, thank you everybody for writing those fantastic questions. Keep them coming. This is great. And without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 